0: Last week, I told a story at the end of my sermon about the bodybuilding hunk that came to our house to buy that furniture from us off off Facebook. And I shared with you about how as the, the critical moment of lifting that furniture into the bed of his truck bed came, he deferred to my pregnant wife and son. There is a type of strength that appears strong but it is not truly strong in the end. There's a type of strength that is more of show than it is of true power. Back when I was wrestling, we differentiated types of strength. And one form of differentiation of strength that I felt was very helpful to me, maybe if you're a guy, it's been helpful to you too, is the differentiation between guys that are gym strong and guys that are farm strong. Does that mean anything to any of you? Yeah. Jim Strong versus Farm Strong. There were certain guys that I'd wrestle that were cut. They were toned. They were fit. They had muscles that were well-defined. Surprisingly, though, often when I'd wrestle these guys, they really weren't that strong. On the other hand, there was a certain sort of physique that always made me a little bit nervous, and it wasn't the sort of physique that you might see on, you know, TV shows It's not the sort of physique Arnold Schwarzenegger is sporting. This is more like, I don't know, I I wrote hog in the notes, but I'm not trying to be insulting. What I'm just saying is these guys were shorter, thicker, had big bellies, and big thighs, heavy thighs. Whenever I came up a guy like that, I was leery. I approached him. I, I wrestled the guy. We wrestled in the district tournament and he was such a man, you know, he had, I mean, I think his legs were touching past, the, past his knees, standing up straight. And my coach, I lost, he, he won the state tournament that year and he, he beat me pretty good. And I, The only words of, of, of consolation my coach offered were, Nate, you lost that match but he's got to live with that face for the rest of his life. <laughs> Strange comforts when you're in high school, you know? <laughs> of course, uh, this isn't just true with, with wrestling and with bodily strength. It's an analogy for life. You know, I've been sort of really slowly puttering through a book um, that is focused on life after high school this year. I started, I'm just, you know, a few pages here and there. It's kind of a slow read. Uh, But one of the points that the book makes, and it was written a number of decades ago, is that high school is sort of a phenomenon unto itself. It's sort of like its own little microculture that isn't really represented anywhere else in the world at large. It's sort of, it's very unique. Um, And it makes the case that those that appear the strongest or the most popular in high school, in grades 9 through 12, actually don't end up being the most successful in life that's one of the things that the author is sort of bringing up again and again and he shows in various ways how people that aren't that popular and don't find that sort of success early actually often are the ones that find it later in more meaningful ways so the trends of high school don't hold that's that's another way of viewing strength you know farm strong gym strong they're different uh this is a principle that goes beyond high school as well though it's in the Bible, it's all through the Bible. So the Bible, the big picture of the Bible is that you have the powers of this world, you have the powers of Satan, you have the powers of darkness, you have the powers of, the Bible talks about principalities of the air, right? The forces of this world that are, that are evil. And the message, overarching message of the Bible is about how Christ, who, was, who is God and who condescended, who became man, and had no stately form of majesty, a man who was despised and rejected, overcame and defeated all the powers of the world in a single blow. That's the overarching big picture meta story of the Bible. Jesus might have looked weak. He might have been ugly, he probably was. He was terrible, at rubbing shoulders with all of the important people. He had no social power that, 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 that was unique to this world. It, it, his ways were not the ways of, of the world. But it is Jesus who is both Lord and Christ. The Bible says it is Jesus who is the king of all of the realms of this world and of the heavens. In him, is more power, more strength than we have the ability actually to conceive of, more than we can comprehend. So it's this showdown in the Bible between the representatives of Satan in this world and the representatives of Christ that we actually see in the passage we're going to read in the Bible, in our passage this morning. It is, it's the showdown between representatives of Satan and his power versus Christ. It's not unique to this passage, but it's clear in this passage. Though sin might look powerful, and the cause of Christ might appear weak, it is not as it appears. And I'd like to speak with you this morning about the poverty of sin and the power of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, those are the sort of two ends we're going to focus on this morning, the, the, the poverty that sin lands you in but the great power of Christ. So why don't you stand with me? If you have your Bibles, open up chapter 4 of Acts. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 12 this morning. Or you can follow along behind me. This is God's word. It says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas... And John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them, Peter and John, in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you, the builders. I'm sorry, he stands here before you in good health, rather. He is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation... In no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be Amen. God. Would you pray with me? Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is forever true, it holds sure to our day and to the very day that you return. And Father, I pray that we would be people, men and women, families, a church that stands upon your word, that applies the truth of it first to ourselves, so that we might taste of your power, and then to offer it to the world around us, a world that needs truth, a world that is in darkness. Father, I pray that you would speak through me, help my words, I pray that you would soften all of our hearts so that we are ready to listen, ready to learn, ready to receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You you can be seated. In the first place this morning, I'd like to point out a few of the ways in which the path of sin is a path That may have the trappings of power the pull of allurement there's something about it that looks impressive that looks nice that can look strong like the guy who works out at the gym but I'm hopeful to make the case and underscore the truth that in the end sin leads to poverty and death every time. Sin leads to being poor. And I'm not just talking about your money, I'm speaking about your life. Sin makes your life impoverished. Sin can take any area, your fi- it can be your finances, it can be your, your social life, it can be your emotional life, it can be your spiritual life. Any area you choose to. To select. You apply sin to it, unmitigated, undealt with, and it will bring ruin and poverty to you. That is what the Bible teaches. So, first, I want to consider this with you this morning. I want to consider the way in which sin has a hardening effect. The current scene that we just read about. There's resemblance to another trial that took place in the same location approximately 50 days prior Remember that it was only that long ago that it was not Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin But it was their Lord Jesus Christ who stood before this same group of Jewish leaders Tried in a sham of a trial before being sent off to Pilate with a request that he be executed but there's a few notable differences between what happened a few weeks ago to Jesus and now today, if we were in the lives of these apostles here. In the case of Christ, think about this the religious leaders sought out a traitor, didn't they? They put together a plan, and part of that plan was. Obtaining someone who is willing to be a traitor and betray Jesus into their hands. To go to Jesus by night and to take him by force, betraying him even with a kiss, a sign of affection, but then delivering him into the hands of a group of soldiers with swords and torches. But in our passage this morning, It is these same leaders who have no problem rushing into the temple and making the arrest of Peter and John with their own hands, brazenly, in the daytime, before a large audience of people that were actually positively affected toward the apostles. Verse 3 tells us plainly, they laid their hands on them. what they had once done under the cover of darkness of night with Jesus Christ, they have now the boldness to do in broad daylight. And this is the point. Those that hated Jesus, those that persecuted him, have only grown more audacious, more brazen, more bold since the crucifixion. Jesus died asking his Father in heaven to forgive these people father for they know not what they do and he died and the earth shook and the sky mourned thunder lightning and earthquakes or what took place as he breathed his last tombs were rattled and the dead came back to life that thick Woven centerpiece of all of Israel that the veil of the temple that separated the people from the presence of God was was just torn from seam to seam all the way down It's such a crazy experience That a, a, a pagan Roman who could care less who's just been stationed at the foot of the cross looks up and says This was the son of God He couldn't ignore The things, the phenomenon that was happening, the display of power that was happening, the way that the whole earth seemed to cry out against the death of Christ. And yet, what is the effect of all of this on the religious leaders? It only served to harden them further. They have no shame in delivering Christ over to death, and they've learned nothing from it, have they? They had hard hearts, and the hardness of the hearts that they had, we see in this passage has grown. Sin, while it is yet struggling to be born, is accompanied with a sense of shame that often, by God's mercy, holds us back. But once that sin has been fully formed, and we've started committing it, it makes those who practice that sin, all the more shameless and hard-hearted. I know you've experienced this. I have. There are very particular things I can think back to my life on, and I can remember the first time I decided to do something. And there was a whole lot in my heart, on my conscience, that was seeking to hold me back from it. And I make a decision against God and against the conscience that he's given me, and guess what What happens the next time? It gets a little easier, doesn't it? There's not as much internally holding you back, and then you do it again, and guess what? Your conscience just begins to erode, right? Your shamelessness grows, you don't care. It leads to a heart that is hard. A Number of years ago, we and some friends used to do an event once a year called Fry Night, and uh, it was as good as it sounds, 10 courses, 15 courses of fried junk food, Oreos and corn dogs and donuts and french fries and chicken fingers and whatever, you know, you, you name it, we'd fry it. We even did deep fried deep-fried ice cream, you know. And one year, uh, one of the families showed up with T-shirts for all of us. They said, fry night, said where hearts are warm and arteries are hard. <laughs> and isn't that the truth? You know, all that, over time, all that grease, all that junk food builds up in your system and creates plaque and it makes your arteries hard it's bad for you 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 can't pass the oxygen and blood that you need to pass to function in the way that God's created you and the same is true with our sins this is my point when we decide to go after sin there's a wearing away of the shame that once was given to us and intended to keep us from those things the more we push down our conscience and give into to our sins, the more shameless we're willing to be in them and the more hardened our hearts become. It's strange. You know, I've never heard anyone, when you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, I've never heard anyone say, I want to be hard-hearted. Have you ever heard that? You ever heard anybody say, I want to be hard-hearted? No. Nobody would say that. It's all the junk food we want, though, that makes us hard-hearted, Right? Nobody says, I want a heart attack when I grow up. It's just the Big Mac that they keep ordering every time. You understand? We want to get the credit. We want to get revenge. We want to get the last word. We want to cover up what we did. We want to lie to make ourselves appear better than we are. We want to be selfish. We want, you know, gratification. We want what we want. And often we sin against our conscience. And we don't recognize that wanting what we want is actually hardening our hearts. And this is the first way we see poverty, the poverty of sin, creeping in our passage. Earlier, we were singing and I felt something in my pocket. And I This is becoming a very common experience. You know what this is? This is a bulletin from uh, Jason and Bella's wedding. It's becoming a very common experience in this church. I'll pull out a suit jacket and I'll find, you know, two or three wedding bulletins in the pockets of my suit. And um, the the reason I I bring it up is to say that we have a lot of new marriages here. A lot of these, I've got a lot of these things going through the dry cleaner. And um, if you're newly married, I want to say this. It's very important that you recognize that this is the nature of sin when you start out in your marriage. Because you, you, you may have already figured this out, and your spouse has too, that you guys married sinners. Have you figured that out yet? Of course you have. doesn't take very long. And so you have to learn how to deal with our sins in a biblical, godly way. And if you don't, there's two, basically two options for you. If you don't figure out how to deal with that stuff, you're either going to keep blowing up your marriage and fighting because you and not, you're not dealing with it well, or you're going to sort of just scab over all of it and pretend it's not there and ignore it, and it's going it to fester and, and get infected and be nasty in the end. Over time, if you don't deal with your sins, it leads to unhealthy, unenjoyable relationships where there's a lack of trust, a lack of love, a lack of real intimacy. God is showing you a better way. And the better way the way he intends is to deal with your sins quickly because you recognize that they have a hardening effect on you and on your marriage over time, the longer you go the more painful it's going to be to deal with and so my encouragement is to learn from this negative example of the religious leaders deal with your sins quickly I was sitting with a young guy yesterday and we were ta- I was saying that it's sort of like a, a splinter. You know, you get a splinter. How many you all got a splinter, right? And you know, you, the best time to get out that splinter, you know what it is? As soon as you get it, right? The worst is when you don't know you got a splinter and then you grab something and you p- push the splinter into your finger further and it breaks off, right? Like that's the worst. The best time is to get that splinter out is when there's a little part of it sticking out and it could be painful, it could be annoying. But you just got to deal with it right then. Every parent has tried to have this logical conversation with their children, and it never goes, children are not logical on this level. Why do you have a pen you're shoving into my finger? You don't want that thing to get into your skin and to get covered over so that your finger's annoyed for the next two weeks, right? Best time to deal with it is now, because sin has a hardening effect. You don't, you want to deal with it as soon as possible. And because of the work of Christ, you can. So I'm, we have an example here. It's a negative one. It's not the positive version. But learn from it. Learn from it. If we don't deal with these things, it leads to all sorts of poverty. Okay. That's first. The second point is tied to the first, but it stands apart. I want us to look at the passage. I want us to consider how sin blinds us to the truth. Consider how sin makes you stupid. Stupid. Where do we see this in the passage? Well, look at verse 5 with me, if you will. We're told, on the next day, their rulers and their scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. Now, the rulers that are being referred to in this passage are a group that are called the Sanhedrin, consisting of 71 members. They were led by the high priest. They were responsible for all of the most serious considerations and judgments in Israel. All right, this is the group. The elders that are spoken of are probably some sort of clan leader. The teachers of the law were, were probably those scribes who copied down and who conserved and who interpreted the law. These are the men that are in the room with Peter and John as they are being uh, tried in the scene. In addition to this, the author of the book, Luke, records that Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, who nobody knows anything about those two, and all who were of high priestly descent were present there. You notice he points, he's he's very clear about who is a part of this shindig. In other words, this is like a red-letter day, right? This is an all-hands-on-deck sort of thing. For the Jews, this was the, the group of the highest trained the, the men, the, the highest religious authority, and they're all here. And yet, as they come together for this interrogation, what we have to grapple with, what we at least should notice in the passage, is that we see a blindness and a stupidity that is always there when sin is allowed to reign. What do I mean? Well, we're told the next day they gathered, and there's there seventy some or more are gathered around Peter and John in a half semicircle, as was their custom. And what do they do? Well, they ask a question that is radically out of touch with the things that have been heralded and boldly proclaimed and talked about openly. They ask this question, placing them in the center, they began inquiring, by what power or in what name have you done this? And if you're reading through Acts and you're thinking about what we've talked, the, 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 the things we've discussed over the last couple weeks, this should strike you as sort of an odd question, because it should be obvious why are they asking this question. The blindness, the foolishness, The stupidity is seen here. John and Peter have not ceased from declaring and preaching both the name and the power which healed the lame man since he had been healed. It was the answer to this very question that John and Peter were speaking about and preaching about when the priests bum-rushed these guys the day before. We're told just a few verses back that Peter stood and was proclaiming in the temple on the basis of faith in the name of Jesus Christ. It is the name of Jesus that has strengthened the man whom you see and know. He also went on to say Jesus Christ has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And all of this. And yet, When the highest religious leaders convene their interrogation, what do they ask? They ask, by what power or in what name do you do this? Now, of course, we know they're not sincere, are they? Are they sincere? Do they want to know? Because we're going to see in a few verses, they're conniving about how they can silence the name of Jesus and, and get nobody to talk in his name anymore. So they're not being sincere. They are filled with guile And wickedness wicked intentions the reason that they ask this question is they're trying to bait and switch the Apostles into saying something that could be used against them this is a standard tactic used by them and used by Satan merely disregarding casting off turning a blind eye to the obvious truth of what is being said to the obvious authority and pretending it into oblivion, or at least trying to, and then undermining it. This is the same tactic we read about Jesus and Satan in the wilderness last week. You remember? This is the same sort of bold undermining that Satan used with Jesus. It's not that they don't know the answer to their question. They're just seeking to to bulldoze over it They're seeking to get something out of these guys that they can accuse them of. They're seeking to just totally undermine the the authority and the power of the name that they had been preaching. And in it, we just see foolishness and blindness, self-willed. It's it's both from God and self-induced. So here's the point. Sin blinds you to what should be obvious. Sin blinds us to what God has put around us. It keeps you from being able to hear what is true. You're left in silent darkness. Think about living without being able to see what is true clearly. I was having a thought experiment during Sunday school. I didn't do all that well with this, but I was thinking, what would it be like to live a life where you don't know what's true? It's kind of a weird question, right? But I was thinking, okay, you wouldn't know. I was sticking at the level of like, you wouldn't know what the speed limit is. You wouldn't know, but just think about a life where you really don't know what's true. I, what was really, I was thinking about is how many things we take for granted that they are true. There's so many things in our lives that we just hold as true, that it's sort of hard to, hard to imagine not having them. you understand what I'm saying? Imagine trying to live a life without seeing the truth of God the spiritual truth clearly imagine a life where you're blind to it that's what sin does it obscures your ability to see that which is true imagine trying to live a life where you don't know what's true and what a what a what a wreck you'd be now try and imagine living that life spiritually you'd be a wreck you'd, the Sanhedrin it's a wreck At points in our life, we're a wreck because our sins obscure the truth. Sin leads to this kind of poverty. One more thing. The third thing that we see related to the poverty of sin is this. It leads to radical defeat. And this is just sort of a, its a glorious thing. It's, it's such a cool passage. The law said that if any difficulty arose because of religion or if anything new came along, if anything new occurred in the life of Israel, that that thing should be made known. Deuteronomy 17. But who should it be made known to? It should be made known to the priests and to the elders of the people. That's what God had said. So one other thing I'd like to mention is that you could say, in respect to all outward appearances, that these religious leaders, in their interrogation, are doing the very thing that was their duty. They had not failed. They were carrying out the jot and the tittle of the law down to the very last little markings of the law. They were carrying it out. They were doing their due diligence. They were not going to have this new thing being preached. Of course, that new thing was the name of Christ, but never mind that. But since they're, they were outwardly fulfilling part of their responsibility, but yet their purpose was wrong, and since their intent was sinful, what is the outcome of them doing their, the job that they're supposed to do? What was the outcome of it? They were, on the service level, you know, they could say, Look, read Deuteronomy 17, we're doing our job. But no, their hearts were sinful. Their hearts were wicked. Their intentions were wrong. And so what we see is that they're turned on their heels, aren't they? They're absolutely routed in this trial. Do you see this? They are the accusers. But what happens? They get one question. In what name, what power do you do this? What do they receive in response? You rejected the Christ. The accusers become the accused. They that were pursuing Peter and John become those who are pursued by Peter and John with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We often do the same thing that they do. You buy into the idea that, you know, if you position yourself so that you look like what you're doing is right if you've checked the boxes, if you appear like you're doing the right thing, then all will go well and you'll get your way. We tell ourselves stuff like this. You tell yourself if you go through the motions of doing what's right, your heart can be bad, your attitude can be bad, your intentions can be bad, you can have selfish ambitions, you can have bad motivations under what you're doing. And then in the end, you wonder why you don't get the outcome you're looking for. You wonder why you're not seeing anything good as a result. You're wondering why you don't see fruit. It's because we have not yet rooted out this internal sin, and it just warps, it it does any sort of outward compliance is just nullified when we have sin in our hearts. It's leading us. Sin leads to poverty. It leads to defeat, and that's what we see in this passage. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees are wallop. They just get a walloping. Leads to blindness and foolishness. Seventy elite religious leaders against two uneducated and untrained apostles. And yet such great defeat. Such is always the outcome of sin. It leads to ruin, defeat, and poverty. So the reason that I've sought to illustrate the effects of sin, that it, the effects that sin has on us over, over time, is that it almost never seems that way in the moment. Sin can look very cut and trim and fit. It can look attractive. It can look intimidating. It can look strong. Sin is always promising us gratification, that it's going to bless us, that it's going to make our lives happy. The fruit looked good to the eye, Right? When Eve took the fruit, it looked good. It looked good. And yet, sin leads to poverty. We bought a house a year and a half ago. We bought it. It had been vacant for a decade because the family had hired an estate lawyer when their mother and father had died. And that estate lawyer milked the estate for 10 years until there was nothing left. They thought they were hiring an advocate for them. He essentially, the story I was told goes, took all the money from the estate over 10 years of, oh, we can't sell the house yet, we can't sell the house yet, we can't sell the house yet. He milked everything dry from that estate. There was nothing left. They had debts to pay when they sold the house to us this is sin it milks from you until there's nothing left it leaves you hard-hearted it leads you shameless it leaves you blind it leaves you ultimately defeated but this is not the only option that you have available to you this is not the only avenue the only road That you can walk down. There is a much more glorious road. There's a, a wonderful road. We've considered one side of the equation based on the dealings of these religious leaders in the passage, and yet now we have the joy of turning and looking at the other, seeing the alternative. We talk about the poverty of sin, and that is right, but we must also talk about the great power of God that's on display in this passage we can't read verses like this and think about them without being struck at the awesome power of God to just overturn the strength of the world with his pinky. You know? The whole discourse of Peter and the outcome that's going to follow that we're gonna read about is just an amazing display of God's strength. God's power, unlike so many things in this world, His power is not only for those of a certain pedigree or socioeconomic status or religious level. In this passage, there's an obvious contrast going on that Luke narrates between this upper echelon of religious leaders of the Jews and these two obscure apostles They don't even know, uh, these these guys are going to make a name for themselves eventually due to their preaching. But at this point, what's clear is if you read a little further, the, the, the leaders don't know who they are. They say, who are these guys? They're untrained, they're unlearned. And then it says, eventually they recognize them as having been with Christ. That's the level of status these guys have, which is basically nothing at this moment. So you have this contrast between the religious elite Seventy guys interrogating these two unknown dudes. One thing you may not know is that during this time, the, the office of high priest was sort of for sale politically against the way God had decreed it, obviously. Men would slip into the seat in part by political maneuvering, by rubbing the right shoulders, by having the right connections. This is the way the world seeks power. But the power from God is altogether different. It does not come from politicking or by schmoozing or by your own attainments or advancements. It is given to you. It's given to Peter and John freely by God through the work of Christ. God promises to give his strength to you to all those that love him we are told most plainly that Peter was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit we're told this in verse 8 this is not something that he did of his own volition but rather God gave Peter his power to speak before the courts and the leaders and the rulers just as Jesus had promised the disciples that they'd be able to do Jesus said don't be afraid when you're dragged into court Don't be afraid when you're interrogated because in that moment, I will be with you. The Spirit will give you words to speak in that moment. The Spirit of truth will give you what you are to say. And it is this powerful truth, this strength from Jesus Christ that we see given to Peter in this moment. It should be encouraging to you. We already know that Peter had the Holy Spirit, right? We passed Pentecost already. You remember that. So Peter already has the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not not like, oh, well, he's here today and he's gone tomorrow. The Holy Spirit was living inside of Peter, and yet in verse 8 of this passage, what we see is some sort of special outpouring on Peter of God's strength for this moment of need. Is that the kind of strength you want? Or are you content with your own strength? God is willing to give you his strength. What sort of strength are you trying to live your life by? It's an amazing passage. Sin in the moment puts off the appearance of being strong. Seventy guys surrounding two. The Sanhedrin sitting in their chairs, surrounded by their wealth, their influence, their power, their their ear to of the of the political leaders of the time. They could ring a line to Pilate. They had influence. They had power. They were clothed in their religious authority. But all of that, all of that is sent reeling by two simple, uneducated, untrained, poor, obscure men who have a taste of the strength and power of God. In the end, sin brings poverty. It brings defeat. The religious leaders may have had a power. They may have had that sort of Jim Strong look when it came uh, initially, but when it came into contact with the power of God, It was exposed for what it was. It was blown away by the power of God. And it is this power that is offered to you. God offers it to you. He wants you to live in his power. The power to depend and count on God, like Peter did when he stood up and opened his voice to speak. The power of knowing the truth. Not just the truth, the the speed limit that you're driving home today at, but the power of the spiritual truths that surround you. Having the discernment to see those. Having the power to live in the light. Having the power of a clean conscience. And what a powerful thing that is. Having the power of Christ to say no to the weak power of sin. Every day. Every day. Because you see the power of God being so much greater. So I want to ask you what kind of power do you want to live your life by? What kind of power and strength do you want to define your life by? The power of sin, the Jim Strong look, the power of God. Let's pray.